Good morning. It's 11 minutes before 8 a.m. You're listening to Raven Radio, KCAW in Sitka. Today is Wednesday, October 14th, 2020. I'm Peter Apathy with Raven News. When the Asitka Assembly met last night, it held a changing of the guard, recognizing outgoing Assembly members and certifying the results from last week's municipal election. KCAW's Catherine Rose reports. The results from the October 6th municipal election were certified and new members were sworn in when the Sitka Assembly met on Tuesday. But first, the group honored outgoing Mayor Gary Paxton and Assemblymember Richard Ween with service awards. Ween, who has served on the Assembly since 2017, did not seek re-election this year. I would like to thank everyone in Sitka for their kindness and patience. Uh, For those individuals who thought I did a good job, I'd like to say thank you. For those who were not so sure, I apologize, uh, but I did try my best. And for those who really thought I didn't do well at all, I ask for your forgiveness. Uh, Because um, it's a lot more work than you imagine. A longtime surgeon, Ween said moving forward, he plans to pick up a reporter's notebook instead of a scalpel. And what I intend to do, or will try to do, is to dust off my journalism degree, because believe it or not, I do have a master's in journalism, and I will try to serve um, in a different way. Gary Paxton served for two years as Sitka's mayor, overseeing the finalization of the Sitka Community Hospital sale and the hiring of a new city administrator. A former city administrator himself, Paxton ran for re-election this year, but was defeated by Stephen Eisenbeis. After receiving his service award, he offered just a few words. Mr. Ween is indefatigable. I uh, and, and appreciate all the work you did for commissions everywhere. Last comment, I'm a soldier, I'm not a politician. After the assembly honored Ween and Paxton, the new members, Crystal Duncan and Rebecca Hemshute, and Sitka's new mayor, Stephen Eisenbeis, took their oaths of office. All right, if you'll raise your right hand and repeat after me. And municipal clerk Sarah Peterson took a moment to thank all of the volunteers and staff who worked long and busy hours at the polls. Uh, They did a phenomenal job during an unprecedented time, and I'm extremely appreciative um, for their help. In the end, 3,312 votes were counted in the 2020 municipal election, making it the second highest voter turnout for a city election in the last two decades, with over half of the votes cast early or absentee. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Catherine Rose. We'll have more coverage of last night's assembly meeting on Raven News tonight at 518. A watchdog group hopes a lawsuit will shake loose more evidence of lost revenue from timber sales on the Tongass National Forest in southeast Alaska. As Joe Vicknicki reports, the borough government in Petersburg has also sought answers about what's been done to fix problems with little response. Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility is a nationwide watchdog group for current and former public sector workers based in Silver Spring, Maryland. It's published other internal documents from the U.S. Forest Service that faulted oversight, transparency, and accounting for timber contracts on Prince of Wales Island and near Petersburg. Pierre in August asked for the agency to release its audit of Tongass timber sales under the Freedom of Information Act. 
That request has yet to be fulfilled, and the group is asking the courts to enforce the law. Piers Pacific Director Jeff Rook expects the audit will confirm those earlier findings. We think it's timely in that, as you know, there's an effort to dramatically expand logging in the Tongass by repealing the roadless rule, and that if passed is prologue and they've lost money on these earlier sales, you may be looking at a new gusher of red ink from new sales. Rook says financials from the audit also should have been included in the recent environmental analysis on granting a full exemption of the Tongass from the Clinton administration's roadless rule. A decision on opening up more areas of the forest to logging and road building is expected in the coming weeks. Elected officials and residents in Petersburg also have asked about the extent of lost revenues from past timber sales and what's been done to correct oversight with sale administration. Alaska Regional Forester Dave Schmid said last November in a public meeting that the audit was nearly complete. KFSK and others submitted a Freedom of Information Act request for that audit last year, but the agency has not produced it. Petersburg Borough also sent letters seeking answers dating back to 2018. Forest Service Chief Vicki Christensen responded that the agency would share more information. That was in May of last year. Appeals to the Department of Agriculture's Inspector General for a separate external review also have so far been fruitless. In 2016, staff with the Washington Office of the Forest Service found, among other things, that timber companies are leaving behind lower-value hemlock and cutting more of the high-value cedar and spruce trees, which changes the economics of timber sales and how they're appraised and awarded. George Woodbury of Wrangell is a board member for the Alaska Forest Association and Industry Group. The reason it's not being taken is because we got the, the long-term sales taken away and the pulp mills taken away so we don't have a secondary manufacturing facility. We don't have a, we are no longer able to produce everything that we were before. It's a result of the uh, uh, environmental challenges and the, and the fact that they shrunk the timber supply so much you can't uh, have a, an industry big enough to have the infrastructure to, uh, to utilize all the wood. The Forest Service says it won't comment on the litigation. It referred inquiries to the Department of Justice, which did not immediately respond to questions this month. In Petersburg, I'm Joe Vicknicki. At the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, many rural communities imposed strict quarantine measures to keep the virus out of their tight-knit towns. That was largely successful in stalling the spread of COVID-19. But in the past several weeks, that's started to change as cases have flared up in dozens of villages across the state. Northern and northwest Alaska, which is comprised entirely of off-the-road villages, now have the highest case rates in the state, measured as the percentage of people who have tested positive in the last week. And crowded housing and reliance on air travel make containing the spread especially difficult for these communities. Alaska Public Media's Lex Trinan reports. Kotzebue resident Maya Lukin remembers the day that she got the call about her test result. She'd just returned from the clinic and was at home with her disbelieving husband. My heart sank, and I sat on the couch. I sat down to take the call, and then I just started crying. And he's like, "You're not positive. You're not positive." And I was like, like staring at him with tears running down my face. She was positive. Without saying a word, her husband put on a mask and held one out for her to do the same. She put it on while she was still on the phone with her doctor. They had recently lost a friend to the virus, and so fear of it was still raw. But Lucan and her family were fortunate. They had a large house with their kids' empty bedrooms, which allowed them to isolate within the same home. We immediately put 
a, a divider wall. Let's see, we put a wall, a door, and a like a blanket up for the other side of our house where it has its own bathroom, a full kitchen, you know, a bed, a TV, internet, and its own separate entrance, you know, in and out of the house. And so I was packing things like packing clothes for myself to go into the other side of the house. Her husband and granddaughter, who she takes care of, would stay on one side of the house in the hopes that they wouldn't catch the virus while she isolated on the other. But separating a three-year-old from her grandmother wasn't easy. Our granddaughter freaked out, and she was like, where's my Anna? Don't leave me. Multi-generational households and extended families living nearby are much more common in rural Alaska than in urban parts of the state, making social distancing especially hard. Some communities have imposed harsh lockdowns, and families are having to make tough decisions to stop seeing elders or kids. But that's not always enough to keep the disease out. And the virus has found a way to sneak into dozens of rural communities where it can spread quickly. Rural cases now account for about one-tenth of the state's total, with recent outbreaks in Gamble, Quinnahawk, Buckland, and Utkiakvik, just to name a few. Christina McDonough is a Supiak law student living in Anchorage who's been tracking rural COVID cases since the start of the pandemic. She says after many medical appointments were delayed early on, she's heard of a new vector of transmission among rural residents. So for people to receive routine medical care, they have to fly to Anchorage or to Fairbanks. Um, and these are the two huge hotspots in the, in the state. Of course, she says, medical care shouldn't be delayed. But she's hoping that residents and officials keep paying attention and make sure that people have places to quarantine when they return to their villages. State officials say they've been working with tribes to plan for large outbreaks. They've conducted staged exercises for how to respond if there is one. Here's Tim Struna, Chief of Public Health Nursing for the state of Alaska, at a press conference last week. It is a concern for everybody, uh, and everybody is is passionate about making sure that it, as soon as a case is identified, that there's uh, this, this uh, team that is going to surround it and do everything they can to uh, uh, keep it as contained and as small as possible. Despite their best efforts, many worry that if cases around the state continue to rise, it could mean trouble for rural communities who rely on their cities for health care. Christina McDonough again. We've worried from the beginning, if Anchorage is full, where are they going to send people? Are they going to send people to Seattle, where they have their own number of cases? Um, it's, it's a really big problem. And the solution will depend, in part, on city dwellers masking up and taking other precautions to make sure that rural residents have access to the hospital beds they'll need. As for Maya Lukin and her granddaughter, Lukin decided that living at different ends of the house was worse than the increased risk of her catching COVID. Lukin is wearing a mask at home and letting her granddaughter sleep with her, but in a different bed on the other side of the room. Reporting in Anchorage, I'm Lex Trinan. And that's all for Raven News for this hour. You can listen to or read our stories again on our website, kcaw.org. Thanks so much for tuning in. Hope you're having a great